0: church-wide implications as well as practical application. When we talk about church, we talk about an organized body of believers who have gathered to worship God together. So when we talk about church, that's what we're talking about. These are local churches. These are literal churches. Ephesus, of course, was the careless church. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Smyrna is the crust church. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. This is the church that's going in under incredible persecution. This is the, the word picture where you see the huge boulder, and a person is knocked down, and the boulder's rolling over them. It's crushing them. The crushed church. Then there's Pergamus. That's the compromising church. Those who had hold the doctrine of Balaam, the doctrine of Nicolaitans, they'd compromise their doctrine, they'd compromise their beliefs. This is a compromising church. This is Pergamus. Then there's Thyatira. This is the corrupted church. For you allow that woman Jezebel to teach and seduce to commit sexual immorality. This was the corrupted church. Then, of course, there's Sardis. Sardis is the crippled church. You have a name that you are alive, but you're dead. Then there's Philadelphia, the one we looked at last week. This is a consistent church. This is the one who left a spiritual legacy to be copied rather than cleaned up. This is Philadelphia, the consistent church. You have kept my word and not denied my name. And now we're coming to today, Laodicea. This is the cooled off church. Because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I've seen this called the foolish church, the closed church, as compared to Philadelphia, who was the church with the open door. We'll talk about the door that Jesus is standing and knocking at that's closed. It's been called the lukewarm church, the rich poor church, as compared to Smyrna, which was the poor rich church. In other words, they had to see a thought they were rich, but in truth, spiritually, They were bankrupt. The complacent church. My favorite is called Laodicea, You Make Me Sick. Is another title that I've seen. This is Laodicea. Called a church in the same way as the others are called churches. This is, in other words, these are made up of believers. They are believers that are far away from God. but Yet it's a church like any other church. There's no commendation. As you read through this, it's not commended for anything. It was one of the two. Sardis, the other one. Of course, was the crippled church. Christ loves this church. It's interesting that of the seven churches, only two of them does he express love for that church. He loved Philadelphia. Philadelphia was easy to love. They were they had a spiritual legacy to copy. But just as much as he loves those who are continually walking in a, in a systematic way of obedience to him, he loves those who are wayward from him. He loved the church at Laodicea. Why does he even bother re- trying to reach out to them? Because he loves them. See, whether you're far from God or you're walking in obedience to him, he loves you with an undying love. He loves this church. The best of churches, the worst of Churches the best of individuals, the worst of individuals. He loves you. Some believe that this Laodicea is the church of the last part of the 20th century and definitely part of the 21st century. Believes that this is where the church is today. It's lukewarm. It's cooled off. It was located 40 miles from Philadelphia on the road to Colossae. Colossians chapter 4, it speaks of a letter that Paul apparently wrote to the church of Laodicea. It's not been recorded for us or retained for us. I don't know necessarily why. I'm assuming also from what he said in Colossae to the church at Colossae that he may have written similar things to the church here at Laodicea because of their close connection. The church was started by Epaphras, as we find from Colossians chapter 4, as well as Colossians chapter 1. The one thing that is interesting that Jesus, or as he talks about this church at Laodicea, it had no convenient water source of its own. They were lukewarm. The reason being this. Hierapolis was known, it was only about seven miles away, it was known for its hot springs, its healing hot springs. So they would use an aqueduct to bring some water in from Hierapolis. Colossae, was known for its very cool, refreshing mountain streams, mountain springs. They would also aqueduct, use water, aqueduct to bring water into uh, Laodicea from Colossae. Well, because of the climate, and such, by the time the water from Hierapolis came there, it was lukewarm. By the time the water from Colossae came there, it was lukewarm. So it's interesting to play on words. They knew exactly what he's talking about. Because you're lukewarm, I vomit you out of my mouth. Let's look at the earthly recipients. Laodicea. Uh, earthly recipients, there's three primary characteristics of, of Laodicea. Let me let me uh, let me give you a disclaimer, first of all. You know how those who have been involved in preaching or teaching, you know, when you prepare a lesson, how things just, they just seem to come together. And other times when you're doing a preparation, your Bible teaching, your preaching lessons, it just, it's like pulling teeth to get something to go. This is my disclaimer. It was like pulling teeth to bring this together. And and to use the immortal words of Dave Nelson, I'm not complaining, I'm just explaining, okay? Earthly recipients. There's three, three primary characteristics there's finances, there's fashion, and there's pharmaceuticals. And pharmaceuticals has to pay, be spelled with a PH, not an F. So, finances. This is Vegas, Port Royal, and Chase Manhattan Bank all rolled into one. This was a financially secure city. In, in 61 AD, it was destroyed by a, an earthquake. Caesar, as many times to many of these Roman cities, would offer to lend them money to help rebuild their city. They refused. Their resources were so substantial that they rebuilt the city themselves. So owing nothing to Caesar for, for. This is a very wealthy it was a, uh, city, location as well as business center. Fashion. Uh, it was famous for clothing made from the soft black wool produced there. It was glossy. It was black, almost violet in color. It was beautiful. They made several, four specific different types of garments, as well as rugs from this glossy black wool. The Laodicean mills produced these garments, these rugs, and they actually shipped them all over the world. They were known for this. They were part of the fashion world. Pharmaceuticals. There was a famous medical school as well as a health resort to find healing through latest medical treatments. It would be the Mayo Clinic or Cleveland Clinic of our day. But one of the things specifically that they were known for, and this is going to come up later in the text. So they, in other words, it's interesting how Jesus plays on what they already have experienced. There was a tablet which, when crushed and mixed with water, made a salve, and it was placed on the eyes or put on the eyes, and supposed to cure various eye ailments or eye problems. This is and 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 Laodicea was known the ones that produced this tablet. Again, they were known in the world for that. The author I mentioned a little bit about that when we begin our, our scripture reading. The divine author. These things says the amen. The amen. I, I am final in my conclusive words. The Hebrew word, this is a Hebrew word for truth. The certainty of truth in Greek is so be it or let it be so. It's often translated verily, verily or truly. Truly one part of the gospel declaration of Jesus. When Christ speaks, it is the final word, the word of certainty, the word of truth, the amen. He is the final authority. He is the amen. This, This, apparently, one of the things this church needed to know was when he says, I know you, just like he said to the Church of Philadelphia, I know your works, To the church of Laodicea, he says, I know your works. Just as much as he knew the works of Philadelphia, he knows the works of Laodicea. And the amen, he has that final authority. He knows. If he says he knows, he knows. The faithful and true. I am faithful in my consistent witness. Christ did not dilute the truth. Remember he said there to Sardis, you have a reputation, but the reality is you are dead. He didn't dilute the truth. He did not distort the truth. He was perfectly accurate. I know your works. I know. He's faithful and true witness. I am faithful in my my consistent witness. The beginning of God's creation. I am first in my creative works. This actually may have harkened back to the false doctrine that was being taught at Colossae, may have filtered into Laodicea. They were trying to teach and preach that Christ was a created being. Well, as a man, he had a beginning. But as the Son of God, he was the beginning. John 1.1, 1, 1, in, the, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He always was. He always has been. He always is. But then you get down to verse 14, and the Word became flesh. See as Jesus he became flesh as Jesus he had a beginning but as the son of God he always has he always was authority if if I was to summarize and, and look at this I would say this he has authority he has power and he rules I know The amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of all creation. As I mentioned earlier, there's no commendation for this church. Christ starts out right away with he condemns the church. As he says to them in verse 15, 16, and 17, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot, so then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say... I'm rich, I have become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. Do And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, you're naked. There's two things I see here. First of all, there's a loss of passion in verse 15 and 16. As we said, there's a major lack in Later to see was that suitable water supply. Cold water on a hot day is refreshing. Hot water on a cold day is comforting. The point is that they were neither hot nor cold. They had lost their passion for the things of God. Church people in our day, as well as in their day, were no longer moved by the cross. Isaiah chapter 53. How can you read Isaiah 53 and not be moved? But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How can you read that and not be moved? How can you read that and not have an emotional response? He died for me. The sins that I committed, the sins that I should bear, he took my place. They come to hymns or songs like the power of the cross and sing our names are written in his wounds and remain unmoved. They lost their passion. Church people in our day are no longer moved by the plight of the lost. They know people are lost. They know lost people are going to hell and they know the remedy, but they really don't care. They don't pray. They don't witness. They lost their passion. This is what happened in Laodicea. They lost their passion. A lady went to pick up her daughter from Sunday school, and she knew that they had been working on memory verse, and so and she knew what the memory verse was. The memory verse: Many are called, but a few are chosen. And so she asked her daughter. She said, "Did you learn your memory verse today?" She said, "Yes, mom." Well, what is it? The daughter responded, "Many are cold, and a few are frozen." This is the state of most evangelical churches in our day. People enter the church, take their seats, fold their arms and say, bless me if you can. There's no need to repent from sin. There's no need to pray for others. There's no need to testify of Christ and the cross. They never feel a need to do anything but come and go. You see, many are cold And a few are frozen. There's a loss of passion. The second thing is a loss of perspective. These believers were self sufficient. How did they see themselves? I'm rich. I'm wealthy. I need nothing. How did Jesus see them? You are wretched. Has to do with being depressed, dejected, distraught. You are miserable. You are the object of extreme pity. You are poor. Speaking spiritually speaking. They were living in the flesh and not in the spirit. They were walking in the flesh, not walking in the spirit. They were fleshly controlled, not spirit controlled. You are poor. You are reduced to begging. You are blind. You're blind to spiritual truth. You're naked. You're clothed in self-righteousness. Because after all, I'm rich, I'm wealthy, I need nothing. It's all about me. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says, For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves, by themselves, comparing themselves, among themselves, are not wise. We need to heed the words of Jesus. Wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Remember, this is from the amen. This is a faithful and true witness. This is the beginning of God's creation. This is not something he dreamed up. This is the truth. The point is, I believe, that the church at Laodicea was content to play church. While the world around them pursued empty dreams, and even worse, the church at Laodicea was indistinguishable from their fellow citizens. They were pursuing the same dreams, they were pursuing the same comforts, they were pursuing the same toys, they were pursuing the same stuff. Their purpose for living and passion for Christ had become a nightlight instead of a lampstand. They were indistinguishable from the world around them. It's easy to fall into that. But heed the words of Christ. Then Christ, as he condemns his church, He confronts this church. It's like, when I was reading this, I was thinking, all right, what else is he going to say? What else is there to say? I mean, you've, you've beat us down. You've made me feel horrible and awful. I know I need to change, but what else are you going to say? And so he confronts the church. And that's the one thing about Christ. He never leaves us in our wretchedness, in our misery. In spite of their problems of passion and personal perspective, in spite of their self-centered satisfaction, Jesus Christ continues to reach out to them. First of all, in verse 18, I counsel you, this is his counsel, to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich. Remember, the three finances, the three primary characteristics of this city, finances, that you may be rich. And right garments, that you may be clothed, that the, that the, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Finances, fashion. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. You have the pharmaceuticals. He is so unique in the way he knows how to reach people where they're at, to get their attention and draw them to him so they'll have spiritual eyesight as opposed to eyes that need to have some sap put on them. For transformation, to change into another form, thorough and dramatic change. Their finances, this is spiritual riches, not material riches. Fashion, this has to do with spiritual purity the white garments, as opposed to the black wool garments. Pharmaceuticals, this is spiritual vision, to detect needs, to discern opportunities, to spot danger, to identify godly direction, to determine pure decisions. Spiritual riches, spiritual purity, spiritual vision, His counsel is for transformation, change in another form, through thorough and dramatic change. His counsel to you, his counsel to me is thorough and dramatic change. Maybe it's several areas like at Laodicea. Maybe it's only one area that he continues to lay upon your mind. Change, dramatic and thorough change. His counsel is for transformation. His command, it's interesting here in verse 19, there's actually two commands. His command to them is for reformation, to correct error and remove defects. Reformation. Why why does he even care? Why is he concerned about my spiritual welfare? Because he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten We find this in Hebrews chapter 12 as well as Proverbs chapter 3. Often a suffering Christian's life comes from God as a means to correct error and remove defects. Why does he chasten us, as it says in Hebrews chapter 12? A father doesn't chasten somebody else's children. He chastens his own children. He loves us. I rebuke, I confront, chasten, I discipline his command is for reformation to correct error, remove defects. Note the verb tenses, the imperatives, the commands that are given here. He says, first of all, be zealous. That's a present imperative. That means this is a continuous action. You don't have to pray about being zealous. And this answers the whole thing about the loss of passion. Be passionate, be zealous. You have the answer. You have the remedy. Don't come and fold your arms and say, bless me if you can. Be zealous. This is be continuous and consistent action. Repent. This is the aorist imperative. Aorist imperative is that point in time. He said, in other words, repent now. Why are you putting it off? What are you waiting for? Repent now. As he said to Sardis, as he said to, well, to Thyatira, this corrects their problem, their loss of perspective. Be zealous, their loss of passion. Repent now, their loss of perspective. He calls, his counsel is for transformation, his command is for reformation, and thirdly, in verse 20, his call. For restoration. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. For restoration, to reestablish fellowship and friendship. This verse is often quoted, you've heard it, I've heard it, as an invitation to non Christians. In other words, and yes, Jesus does want people to open the door of their hearts to, to come in. Jesus' invitation to the lost is a free gift. Repent, believe. If you're here this morning, that invitation is certainly to you, that you'd open your heart's door to Christ and invite him in. But I believe the context and the text, as this is written to the church, to believers, doesn't mean there may not have been unsaved. But it is written to believers. Even in verse 19, he says, As many as I love. He doesn't chasten any, he doesn't chasten. Uh, anybody else's children, he only chastens his own children. I believe in context, he's speaking to believers who out of ignorance or arrogance have shut Christ out of their lives. Maybe you're here, sitting here this morning, and you've actually shut Christ out of your life. You've shut the door. you got your fire insurance, you're saved, you know you're going to heaven, but that's about as far as your relationship goes with Christ. It's a pitiful picture of Christ knocking, requesting permission to enter and reestablish fellowship. You've seen this picture, I'm sure. There are many of them. There's many depictions of this picture of Christ, standing and knocking at the door. There's three things that are the same in every picture that you'll see Christ standing and knocking at the door. Christ is knocking. There's no door handle. This must be open from the inside. He doesn't force his way upon us, but he's always available. And there's a window in the door. Not only can Christ see in to know, but you can see out to see who's knocking. We hear him knocking. We may be too busy, we may be too far away, we may be too immature. We may be immersed in sinful habits, attitudes to hear him knocking. But Christ is knocking. He's waiting for you to respond. Loss of passion. A loss of perspective. And then finally, Christ comforts the church. If I was Christ, knowing what I know, their loss of passion, their loss of perspective. I would have stopped knocking. I would have walked away. But he loved them. And so he concludes here with comfort to them in verse 21. To him who overcomes, I'll grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Notice there's two thrones here. There's my throne. This throne is reserved for those who overcome. Who is an overcomer? First John 5 4 describes that for us. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? You are an overcomer. As an overcomer, you will sit with Jesus on his throne. Where is that throne? I believe that's reference to the millennial kingdom where he rules. Where we will rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years, but there's a second throne, my Father's throne. This this throne is reserved for only for Christ. This is not a place where we could sit. In fact, this is where Christ is now; he's seated at the right hand of the Father. So, where does that leave us? In other words, let me put it this way, Pastor Ken, if you were to bring this to conclusion, what would you say? I would go back to the beginning. The loss of passion and the loss of perspective. C.S. Lewis said it this way. Christianity, if false, is of no importance and if true, of infinite importance. But one thing it cannot be is moderately important. Passion and perspective. Let us not be part of the lukewarm church. But let's be passionate about the cross. Passionate about the truth. Passionate about sharing the truth. Let's have a proper perspective of the riches. Let's have discerning eyes as we look to see what God has and how he's leading us, how he's directing us. Let's not get caught up in finances and fashion and pharmaceuticals, but rather caught up in Jesus. Passion. Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is modestly important. C.S. Lewis in Christian History is where he wrote that. Every head bowed and every eye closed as we bring our service to a conclusion this morning. Father, we thank you, God, for your the word. We thank you for... It's just overwhelming, Lord. To think of your mercy and your grace and your love that you continue to extend... When individuals are walking so far afoot from you, and yet you're knocking. Part of the invitation this morning with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here this morning and you do not know Christ as your personal Savior, but you would like to know him today, you would like to repent and believe, you'd like someone to show you from the Word of God how you can be saved. Is there anyone like that? Secondly, you were here this morning and say, Pastor Ken, pray for me. Pray for my passion. Pray for my perspective. Is there anyone like that? Any others? Oh, Father, I pray as we come to you, we realize how inept, how often we fall short. But thank you, Father, for loving us. Thank you for not giving up on us. Guide us in our passion for you, our passion for the lost, to have the spiritual eyes, to have that proper perspective as we live out this life. In Christ's name we pray, amen.